Welcome. I'm Nate, and this is the Rebel Podcast. We are part of the Reformed Rebel Network. If you're one of our regular listeners, then you likely know where to find us online and where to find all of our content. But if you're not one of our regular listeners, then I just want to say welcome. You are likely sent this episode by a loved one or by a friend who was maybe encouraged by being reminded of the foundation of our faith, or perhaps you were sent this because they want you to know what they believe in. And I'm sure that they would love to answer any questions that you might have about what they believe and why they believe it. In my line of work, I end up doing a lot of counseling, and I think that there's one question that causes more turmoil in the heart and in the minds of people than a question that's a very familiar question in the Bible. Let me just start by saying I know that there's a whole lot of depression and despair and despondency. There's a whole lot of very real suffering and difficulty in life that bring those things about. But I believe that the biggest question that any of us wrestle with, right, we wrestle with the questions of where there's meaning or why bad things happen to good people or why it is that you have a life that someone else doesn't have and we compare ourselves to others. And there's all kinds of questions that plague us, especially when we're going through difficulty. But if I burrow down, there's one question that's sort of at the root of all of that unrest. And it's a question that gets asked all kinds of places in the Bible. One of those places is actually in the book of Job. Even if you're not familiar with the Bible, you might know the name Job or be familiar with the story of Job. He had a lot in life. He had a lot to be thankful for. He had a big family. He had a big fortune. He had all kinds of stuff. And slowly but surely, that all got taken away. And as he was looking at the middle of a life that had gone wrong, in the middle of all of his suffering and loss and pain, he asks a question, and this is in Job chapter 9. And at the beginning of the chapter, in verse 2, he asks the question, How can a man be made right with God? I think that's the question that's really at the heart of all of our questions, at the heart of all of our unrest. And you might even be listening to this and saying, well, I don't ask that question because I don't believe in a God. I believe in the Bible. And what the Bible actually says in Romans chapter one is that nobody is an atheist. Nobody doesn't believe in God. It's interesting in Romans chapter one, it actually says that God has made himself plain to us. And you might sit there and say, well, he hasn't made it plain to me. I don't understand and I don't see God. I don't see evidence for God. Well, Romans chapter 1 actually says that as we look at the world around us, as we look at the design in the world, at the systems that God has made, things like photosynthesis and things like the way that earth orbits around the sun, the intricacies of life and bacteria and cells, when we look at life, it's impossible to look at the design and the beauty without thinking that there must be a beautiful designer. This argument goes all the way back to Augustine and several early church fathers. But essentially in Romans chapter one, what it says is that we all see that, that God's power and his invisible qualities have been made plain to us in the things that he created so that we are without excuse. And so the way I simply say it is that deep down in our heart of hearts, we all know that there's a creator 
But the reason we don't want to acknowledge that we believe there's a creator is because as soon as we acknowledge that there is a creator, then this question begins to plague us. How can we be made right with our creator? How can we know that that creator, who if he created the whole world, he gets to set the rules in that world. If that creator exists, then that means we are under his authority and we are accountable for the way that we live our lives. And so we try to push that down. Romans chapter one says that we suppress the truth that we know and we exchange it for a lie. And instead of worshiping the creator, we look and we focus our attention and our worship and we ascribe worth and value to created things. Whether those created things are other relationships, jobs, prestige, power, fame, wealth, whatever those things are, we latch on to those things, ascribe worth to those those things and pursue them with our lives instead of the creator. So this question that Job is asking in Job chapter 9, how can a man be made right with God, is the question that we're all trying to avoid when we say that we don't believe in God. If there is a God, how do we know that we are in right standing before him? How can we know that the things that we're doing are actually worthwhile? How can we know that the things that we're doing either please him or upset him? And a lot of people who acknowledge a belief in a creator who would call themselves maybe more agnostic would simply say, okay, I I see that. I see the design. I'm not going to suppress all of that truth. But what I will say is that I'm not sure that it's the God of the Bible. Well, let me tell you what the Bible suggests, what the Bible prescribes for people who are wrestling with this question as I believe we all are. How can a man be made right with God? See, most of us, we compare ourselves to those around us. Or some of us will even compare ourselves to others in history. We'll say, well, we aren't really bad. We haven't killed anybody. We haven't cheated on our spouse. We haven't done this. We haven't done that. And we try to compare ourselves favorably to the people that we know are worse than us. So we say, well, when we stand before God, I'm not as bad as so-and-so. And so he'll look at me and hopefully he'll forgive the bad things that I've done. In other words, I hope that the good things I do outweigh the bad things that I do. The problem with that is another problem that he described in chapter 9. So he starts the chapter by saying, how can a man be made right with God? And then he goes down and he says this. He says, I become afraid of all of my suffering. That's verse 28. For I know that you will not hold me innocent. In other words, what he's saying is, I'm afraid now of all the things that are going on in my life because I'm wondering whether or not those things are things that you are punishing me for, right? Am I going through bad things or bad things happening to me because the God who created me is mad at me? And in the midst of my suffering, I know that I do bad things, I think bad things, and I know that you won't hold me innocent. If all of us were honest with ourselves, we know our sin, we know our our shortcomings, we know our failures and our fears better than anybody. We know the greedy thoughts, we know the lustful thoughts, we know the jealousy, we know the wishing pain and suffering that we've done on other people that we hold contempt for. And so this honesty that Job assesses himself with, knowing that whatever God is up there is not going to hold him innocent. But then he goes on, listen to this. He says in verse 29, I shall be condemned. And then in verse 30, he says, if I wash myself with snow and cleanse my hands with lye, you will still plunge me into the pit and my own clothes will abhor me. For he, he's talking about God now, right? Remember this whole question was, how can a man be made right with God? For he is not a man as I am that I might answer him that we should come together in trial. So here's a problem we all have. 
right? We all have that. Let's just hope that when I stand before God, the good things I do will outweigh the bad things that I do. Job is remembering, he's knowing, he knows himself. He's more honest with himself than we are. And he says, you're not going to hold me innocent. You're going to condemn me. I know that. I know how bad I am. And he says, the problem is I can't even go to God and make my case before him because he's God, right? I don't see him. He's not a man. Like he's not in front of me. I can't talk with him. I can't plead my case in front of him. Like I can't go to trial and plead my case. That's what Job is saying. And so the best any of us can do is sit here and say, I hope that the good things I do outweigh the bad things I do. I hope that I'm better than so-and-so and I just get in. And for me, this is where I just can't imagine living with that kind of anxiety. I can't imagine living with that sort of unknown, right? I hope that when I die, whatever being I stand in front of is going to hold me not guilty. I hope that that's true. Well, Job is plagued with that question because he's actually thinking about it. I think most of us just go through our lives pretending it's not a question. That's why we suppress the truth we know about God. We say he doesn't exist because it's easier for us to try to convince ourselves of that. But Job doesn't say that. He's not a man as I am that I might answer him that we should come together in trial, he says. In verse 33, listen to this. There is no mediator between us who might lay his hand on us both, who can take his rod away from me. Right? So what he's saying is if only there was somebody who could talk to God and talk to man, right? Who could dwell in the heavenly realm, but also dwell on earth, who could put his hand on both humanity and divinity. Essentially, what Job is crying out for is a God-man, someone who can come between us and can be the mediator of this dispute, who can plead my case on my behalf. In other words, what Job is crying out for years and years before he ever steps foot on the planet is Jesus. He's recognizing the need that if somebody is going to plead my case before the divine, they have to be both divine and man so that I can plead my case to him and he can take my case to God. And verse 34, let him, let that mediator take God's rod away from me. Wow. So he's saying, if there was somebody like that, maybe he could take the discipline rod. Maybe he could take the condemnation, the guilt that I have before God. Maybe he can take that away. So he's, he's crying out for Jesus, for the God-man. And, and so let me tell you the good news, because the bad news is, is that we're all Job. We're all standing there, and if we're honest with ourselves, we know that we've done bad things, we've thought bad things, and at the end of the day, we know how dark our hearts and our minds really are. And even though we're not honest with ourselves often, when we are honest with ourselves, we would say, we recognize that we aren't good. I mean, maybe we're good when we compare ourselves to the worst of the worst, but overall, we know we're not good. We're certainly not holy. We're certainly not just. And let me tell you something about the judge that you think you want to stand in front of. You say you want to stand in front of a judge who's going to look at all the good things you've done and look at all the bad things that you've done, weigh them, and hopefully the good things you've done have outweighed the bad. Or hopefully the good things are better than the bad things are worse. And so he'll just let you off. Well, you know that if there was somebody who is guilty of domestic abuse standing in front of a judge and the judge says, you know what, you've only beaten up your wife a couple of times and you seem to pay your taxes on time and you've never cheated on your tax return. And so I'm going to let you off. Just try not to beat up your wife. There's a lot worse people out there than you. Any of us would look at that judge and say, what a horrible judge. What an unjust judge. And so God, who is perfect, is not going to simply overlook our sin. He's not going to simply look the other way, even if our good stuff outweighs the bad stuff. And I would argue none of our good stuff outweighs our bad stuff. And so God has devised a plan. 
And that plan was to send the mediator that Job asked for, to send Jesus, who was the God-man, who was from heaven and was born on earth, who became a man so that he could live the perfect life that we couldn't live. He came, he perfectly obeyed God's law. He didn't lust, he didn't steal, he didn't sin, he didn't do any of those things. He lived perfectly obedient to God the Father. And because he lived perfectly obedient, his perfect obedience is available to us. What Jesus did when he died on the cross was he died in our place. Meaning, the death we deserve because the wages of sin is death right, the punishment we deserve for all of the bad things that we've ever done, Jesus died on the cross in our place, taking our sin on himself. And in exchange, he gets our sin, we get his perfect obedience. That's what C.S. Lewis called the great exchange. The thing that happened on the cross that was so scandalous is that God took all of your sin, my sin, placed it on Jesus and took his perfect obedience and credited it to our account so that the roles were reversed. The sinner, the one who knew no sin became the sinner and the one who was a sinner is proclaimed a saint. This is what the Bible calls justification. Justification is the once and for all declaration that an individual has been accepted by God. Let me say that one more time. Justification is the once and for all declaration that an individual is accepted by God. Here's a quote from a theologian named William G.T. Shedd. He says, The justification of a sinner is instantaneous and complete. It is an all-comprehending act of God. All the sins of a believer, past, present, and future, are pardoned when he is justified. The sum total of his sin, all of which before the divine eye at an instant when God pronounces him a justified person, is blotted out or covered over by one act of God. Consequently, there's no repetition in the divine mind of the act of justification, as there is no repetition of the atoning death of Christ upon which it rests. So what William Shedd is saying is that justification, that act of being declared, accepted by God, is a once and for all thing that happens at one moment. And the question is, how? How does that happen? How does Jesus' obedience get credited to me and my sin get placed on Jesus? That happened all that time ago. How does that go on? Listen to a quote from Charles Haddon Spurgeon who said, Men are either made right with God by righteousness that comes from within or righteousness that comes outside of themselves. There is no third way. It is the overwhelming testimony of the Bible that Christ's righteousness is the only basis for justification, and it comes through faith in the Son and by no other means under heaven. In other words, what he's saying is that the way we get Jesus' obedience credited to us, the way we get Jesus' death to count towards our sins being forgiven is simply by having faith that Jesus is who he said he was, accomplished what the Bible said he accomplished, and simply by placing faith in him for our salvation. This is that moment when the Bible calls it being dead in our trespasses and sins. This is Ephesians chapter 2. But God, being rich in mercy, has made us alive together with Christ. So we were dead. We were raised to life. Another image that comes from 2 Corinthians chapter 4 is just like God said, let there be light and light appeared in the darkness at the beginning of creation has shone gospel light into our hearts. 
This is a moment, a moment when the Almighty God declares us righteous and gives us the gift of faith to believe that Jesus died in our place and gifted us his righteousness so that when we stand before God, we are accepted, we are clean. This is a once and for all declaration that means it doesn't matter based on your performance. It doesn't matter what you've done that day. It doesn't matter what you've done that week. Once and for all, you've been declared not guilty. That's the gospel. That's the good news. And so justification is the once and for all declaration that an individual is accepted by God and it happens on the basis of faith in Jesus and nothing else. That's the gospel. That's what we believe in. All other forms of religion in some way call for you to merit your own salvation, in some way to make yourself acceptable for whatever God is out there. Christianity is the one religion that says there's no possible way for you to earn your own salvation. And so God acted first, sent his son, who willingly went and died in your place so that you could live. That's the gospel. That's what we believe. And that's what whoever sent this to you wants you to understand about what gives them hope. If you have any questions about this, you can reach out to us, the Reformed Rebel Network. This is the Rebel Podcast. I'm Pastor Nate. You can reach out to the person who sent this to you. But they just wanted you to know the best news that's ever been shared since the history of the world. Thanks for listening. You can find out more about this at rebelalliancemedia.com. Thank you.